Welcome to The Cinema Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Jessie. I'm Frankie. And this is Annie. Welcome back. This week we're talking about my pick for the labor series, Harlan County, USA, the 1976 documentary about a Kentucky coal mine strike directed and produced by Barbara Koppel. Mine workers at the Brookside Mine in Harlan County, Kentucky, voted to join the United Mine Workers of America in the summer of 1973. But the company that owned the mine, the Eastover Mining Company, which was a subsidiary of the Duke Power Company, refused to sign the union contract. In protest, the workers went out on strike. The company employed strike-breaking tactics like hiring non-union workers or scabs and using violence and intimidation, ultimately resulting in the murder of a striking mine worker on the picket line. Love this movie, Highland County, USA. It's great. This is one of my favorite docs. This is one of my favorite documentaries. Let's just first talk about the documentarian Barbara Koppel and how she was drawn to this topic. She was a a young documentarian. She had not done her own film. She was working on other people's films, doing sound and editing. She had worked with the Meisel Brothers on Gimme Shelter and a few other projects. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, she was the human tripod for one of the film, (laughs) one of the recording guys at the Madison Square Garden concert. But yeah, like she is a sound person. She's an editing person. Like that's her, her background. I love it. Kindred. Love it. (laughs) Just to preface, a lot of times I think we'll end up saying um, that Barbara did something in terms of the shooting, but really what we mean is that her crew, you know, we don't know exactly who was doing what, um, who was shooting what throughout the documentary. Yes. Right. So a lot of the information I got from, you know, not just watching Harlan County, USA, but also from listening to Barbara Koppel give interviews on WTF with Mark Marin and The Drunk Proje- Projectionist, The Drunk Projectionist, hosted by Todd Melby. Barbara Koppel did conceive of the documentary, and she said that she was listening to NPR and heard a story about the formation of the United Mine Workers of America and the election for the union president in 1969, which got a lot of attention because the incumbent, Tony Boyle, um, was challenged by a progressive candidate, Jock Yablonski. And Boyle had Yablonski murdered, along with his wife, in a really brutal murder in their home. The election results were fraudulent, and Boyle was eventually kicked out of office and convicted for the murder of the Yablonski family. So Yablonski's sons and his other remaining supporters created the Miners for Democracy Party, which was meant to get rid of the corruption within the union and promote mine safety and all of the things that the rank and file really cared about. Their candidate was Arnold Miller, who was a former miner himself and former president of the Black Lung Association. So he won, and it was this really hopeful moment for all of the miners and the union leaders and everybody in the union who felt like, here's somebody who's actually going to listen to what miners need and want and and help them achieve those goals. Mm-hmm. And she was like, this sounds like something that could be really interesting. And at first she thought that the story would be about the Miners for Democracy organization. Very quickly became about the strike at this one mine. 
in Harlan County and about the miners there. And it, you know, zooms in and out, but she really got deeply embedded with the mining community. She lived there for over 13 months and like really built built their trust and built a relationship with those people. There was a story about how when she first showed up, everyone was really suspicious of her. And they were like, these New York hippies are here. Mm. Were they hired by the company? Like, what are they doing here? She said that that changed after the crew was in their car and they were driving to the picket line in the morning and they got run off the road by a scab car and their car overturned. Like, no one was hurt. She and the crew got, they took their equipment, they put it on their backs and then they walked to the picket line. And, you know, it's a small town. Everybody heard about it. And after that, they were like, okay, like, these people are legit. Like, they're here. They're putting themselves at risk so we can protect them and work with them and trust them. You know, the violence was everywhere, and there was no exception. They were part of it. They were targets. So she's young. when Barbara Koppel's young when she's making this film. Yeah. When the movie was finished in 76, she was 30. And it took about four years. This was like her late 20s was spent on this film. And she said she got a loan for $12,000 to start the film. And she went down there with a crew of maybe two or three people and just started filming. She's also, she was the sound recordist. Yes. For the film. Yeah. Not only the director, but she was recording the sound. Which makes sense to me. That, That makes sense, especially in documentary And in her particular documentary, she seems to be running around trying to capture what people are saying as much as she is trying to film and and shoot what's going on. Mm -hmm. And she plays a lot with like disconnecting the sound from the the image. I think her emphasis on sound is pretty clear. I think that in, in documentary filmmaking, it's very important to have good sound because people will forgive bad visuals if the sound is there and they can listen to it yes but i also i just love like a director who also like loves sound we've said this before on the pod but like i do have a soft spot for that i think that's great it's like you know the safty brothers you know one of the safty brothers is always sitting with a boom or something The film is bookended. At the beginning, there's an image of the miners going down into the mine, and it ends with miners coming up out of the mine. Well, I feel like that's Barbara Koppel. Mm. That's a craft trick. Right. She's purposely bookending the film with her descent into the story and then rising back out of the story. And you can either read that as something about the miners and how life has changed for them after they get a contract or you can read it as okay viewers we're going into the story now for a couple of hours and now we're going to go back out to our lives right there i think i think that that can be a meta image she's leading you into the depths of this story yeah and now and now you leave which do you think it is i think it's both but yeah i think it's both yeah i also think that mining any story about mining lends itself to that type of like narrative because you have to go down into the mines <laughs> and eventually you have to come back out. And so right. it makes sense that she would structure the documentary and bookend it in that way. Fire! Fire!
So the first person that she really interviews is an, an old man who's sitting on his front porch, a former mine worker, and he's telling her about his experience with Black Lung, with being a young miner, mm-hmm. being made to feel like his life is not worth anything. Right. His job was to take care of the mules in the mine, and he was told to, you know, be careful with the mule. Like, we don't want the mule to get hurt. And he said, well, what about me? And they were like, well, we can always hire another man, but you got to buy another mule. Mm. And then he starts singing, and the songs are about coal miners and black lung. To me, starting with this is like the first real person that we meet really sets the tone. Yeah, I think that this first interview really sets the tone for the movie, I agree. I think it gives you a sense of, you know, we're going to be talking about a strike. We're going to be talking about mining. We're going to be talking about this whole unionizing effort, but it's also going to be deeply seated into this history and like the context of strikes and violence in in this area, in this industry, and the intergenerational conflicts that are happening over and over again. That plays out with every single person that we meet in the entire film. And the song that he starts singing also sets you up for how she's going to do this documentary. Music is critical. It's critical to this fight. So much of the oral tradition of these strikes is captured in folk music. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of this film and the most memorable things about this film is how she incorporates the music of this movement. We're 42 years in a mighty long time. I labored and tall down in a coal mine. My bones said it ate me. My kneecaps got bad. Down on a hard rock on a set of knee pads. The motors were shifting. I got sand in my heart. Both lungs were broke down from a breathing better. Harlan County has a deep history in coal mining and unionizing. The 1930s was a period called Bloody Harlan, which was decades-long war between coal mine workers and the company because the workers were trying to unionize. And a lot of the older people in the documentary are able to say, I was there in the 30s. I was there for Bloody Harlan. We don't want a repeat of that. And one woman who's featured is Florence Reese, who composed a really famous song, Which Side Are You On? Even if you don't necessarily think you know Harlan County and the story <laughs> yeah. of Harlan County, yeah. you know the song, probably. That's right. <laughs> didn't they also, didn't they play it in an episode of Succession? Yes. in a very ironic sense right so good i mean the song captures yeah a struggle and it can be applied to any struggle i think applying it in succession (laughs) is really sacrilegious but that's the point (laughs) but that's That's the point point. right exactly right it's a really really powerful song i love that scene i love when she stands up in front of that auditorium and she says i might not be able to sing well like i might not be a minor 
but I'm like the closest thing to a minor without being a minor. <laughs> yep. And, and she's like, and I'm going to sing even if I can't sing. Then she starts singing and it gives you chills and people cheer for her and like just, you know, the community's so behind her and her words mean so much to them. Now this song I composed in the 30s. And as you know, I'm old, that's 40 years ago, and I can't sing very well. But you, you can ask the scabs and the gun thugs which side they're on, because they're workers too. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral air. You'll either be a union man or a thug for D.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? I think that gets to a point about this film that makes it really unique. You know, when you think, oh, this is a movie about mine workers striking in Kentucky. It's like you don't necessarily think about the women who... Right are a huge part of that movement. And what by virtue of being there for so long, you know, Barbara Koppel was so enmeshed in this community, yeah. she also saw the women who were a part of it and were really the backbone of this strike. And and I'd love to talk about these women in this movie, because they are just some of the most memorable and say some of <laughs> the most memorable things. Because we're talking about Barbara Koppel, I think one thing we can begin with is that I think being a woman entering the space gave her access in a different way than if she were a man. I think also by highlighting the role and reactions of women, Koppel gives the viewer a better sense of just how enmeshed the mining corporation is with the town. Yes. Right? Which gives you insight into how these small mining towns operated and also why the legacy of the closing of the mines today is so strong, right? Why these towns have now been decimated by the loss of this industry. And that's something, you know, she couldn't necessarily have predicted at the time, but it's a really powerful element of this film because you're, she's highlighting issues beyond just the mine. All of the women are either married to miners or their fathers yeah. are miners. They're all affected exactly. by the working conditions. It's not just the individual worker. It's the whole community that's affected. It's not just about the past. It's not just about the fathers and the husbands. They're Sons. also mothers raising their mm -hmm. children yeah. to be miners. Right? And, and those are some, some of the most like, gut-wrenching moments yeah. is when you have mothers trying to articulate this philosophy of, I am central to this community not only was my father a minor my husband's a minor and i'm the mother of minors and so i have skin in this game like this matters to me and you know one of the first conversations we get with some of these women they're talking all about mine safety and they're like everything should be about safety because they're saying like women all over the country are interested in what their husbands are doing so of course they're interested in safety laws right don't judge us and think that we don't care like this matters to us we're affected by this and there's also the sense that because this is a one industry town these women have to fight for a more stable future because there are no other options for their sons if they're yeah. going to stay in harlan county right right and there are no other options because the company has a 
created a monopoly in the town. Exactly. There's no other industry where anybody could get a job. Yeah. And that's done on purpose to create this complete dependency on the company. And it's almost like they're creating these hostages. Exactly. Completely dependent on them for every aspect of their life, to the money that they make, for the places where they live, to the legacy of their like their heritage. When they take this job in the mine, in a sense, they seem to feel like they're fulfilling their own like destiny and they're yeah. they're honoring their ancestors. Like that's a really powerful yeah. draw. And to think that people could just escape it by leaving. That's like unthinkable to most people. Exactly. So of course they're going to stay and fight. I think you got to something as well, which is that because of the actions of this company in Harlan County, the intimidation, the the threats, the control that the company has over the miners, the women are able to utilize their femininity to confront the company in ways that the men do not feel safe doing. Yeah, pretty early in the movie, some of these women get arrested. Uh, yes. on the picket line and Barbara Koppel goes with them into the jail <laughs> right there some of them are in the jail the men are in the bunks and in the jail and she's shooting all of this footage with this I don't know how she got this access like it's pretty great yeah <laughs> and she's in there and these women <laughs> are yelling like we're gonna beat the hell out of the scabs we're just gonna beat the shit out of them and they're just yelling all of this stuff and you're just you're kind of shocked. <laughs> These Just... women are tough as nails. They're incredibly brave. They understand all of the issues. They see what's going on very clearly. They see the union busting. And it's really remarkable how Koppel captures that. They're not just a part of this. They're leading these strikes. I am a coal miner's wife. I'm sure I wish you well. They take your very life blood. They take our children's lives. Take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. One woman who's my favorite. Lois. Lois Scott. <laughs> she's just, she's in a lot of the meetings, taking the lead, being really outspoken. And there's one scene where she says, oh my God, where is it? It's the tape line. She, so basically, there is, there gets to a point where people who are against the union strikers are bringing guns to the strikers' houses at night and like machine guns and they shot up the president of the local union uh they shot up his house with a machine gun so then we see lois at a club meeting right a, a meeting and they're talking about she says well it would be crazy not for us not to have guns at this point and then it's one of the best parts of the movie it's just so good lois pulls <laughs> a handgun out of her cleavage and, she, and all the women are like whoa, 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 you can't keep it there. And she's like, it's got a safety on it. Wouldn't shoot nothing but my titty off. And I got plenty of that. And she puts it back in. And then like the next thing you see, she's got like her handbag around her, her uh, the crook of her elbow. And she's like, are you going to be there at six tonight? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like that Mother Jones quote. Yeah. Right. Who she herself was like a badass union organizer. And she said, whatever the fight, 
don't be ladylike. You know, when we see them and they're like bathing their daughters or like folding clothes and they're in the kitchen or they're in these very like domestic scenes and they're saying, you know, well, we need a contract. They know what they're talking about. They know what they want. And they're doing that on top of all of this like domestic labor. They're just so strong. Like the strength that they all show throughout the film whether it's in their homes, at these funerals, on the picket line, st- like staring down the sheriff. Tell him I started out with a switch on that picket line, but I'm ended up now carrying a gun. I mean, all the time, too. Hell, you, I you know, especially been since what's happening up there at Highsmith, and knowing them and seeing them, seeing the machine guns, no. It's time to, well, you'd be crazy not to carry a gun now. Another great scene when the sheriff is clearly on the side of the of like the gun thugs and the guys with the machine guns like they do a nonviolent protest just stick a car in the road won't let them go up to the mine the sheriff comes up and they give the sheriff a warrant for the arrest of like the lead of the gun thugs basil collins mm-hmm. and it's like if you're not going to do your job like here we're forcing you to do your job and they're they know what they're doing I think that's one of the coolest parts is that they really organize and then he still is so condescending to them. Yeah, he he calls them baby. Like, baby, you can stand here and raise hell all you want to, but this road's got to be cleared. And he's like, oh, you know, you think you're so smart. Like, he doesn't say it, but when they hand him the arrest warrant, he's still so condescending. He's like, well, you need to give me the $7 fee, like, for the warrant. And then they're like, fine. And then they all just like grab coins and like, they're like, we'll give you $100. Like, just arrest <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that scene, that morning when they block the road with the car, mm-hmm. that's actually the scene that Barbara Koppel says was the scariest day yeah. because everybody had guns. There's a scene there where she goes up to a man who is a lead, one of the lead organizers, and she says... I think they're, they're going to shoot at us today? Shot at us yesterday. What about today? I don't know. You scared? I hope not. Yeah. Ain't you? <laughs> you know, she basically went up and asked him that because she was afraid. <laughs> Which makes it all the more impressive that then she follows the sheriff back to the line like where the scabs are and she goes up to with the sheriff to basil collins car when he delivers the arrest warrant i i could not believe that she walked with him and went right up to the truck window i mean that was shocking and and even basil collins is like get them Mm -hmm. away from my car and she's she's clearly in danger uh yeah yeah in that in that scene well, in that moment of her life, right? Like, it's her life and she's she's living it. It's not just like a scene in a movie. She's putting herself in danger for the doc. Let's, let's talk about Basil Collins and another scene mm-hmm. that's an interaction between Barbara and Basil. That's one of the best interactions in the movie where he's driving by in his truck and she kind of stops and they're talking and she's mm-hmm. leaning into the driver's side window and he's asking her for her press pass. Where's this press card you was going to show? Can I see your identification? Ma'am? May I see your identification? Yes, ma'am. If I had him, I swear I've lost it. All I do is just say Oh, I think I might have misplaced mine, too. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. And then he kind of laughs and then drives off. I think that's another scene that maybe if she was a man, she wouldn't have been able to get away with. 
he doesn't see her as a threat. He's like amused that she thinks she can play. Yeah. Basil Collins, what a piece of work. But Barbara Koppel, really impressive that she holds her own in that situation, especially when she knows this is an extremely yeah. violent person who won't hold back and and like is is a credible threat to her safety. Yeah. <laughs> and she gets right in his face and she does it anyway. One thing that she mentioned in an interview later is that she later found out that Basil Collins survived the Bataan Death March in oh World War II. God. No way. So this Ooh. guy has seen seen some stuff, been through a lot. That's crazy. Yeah. I think for our listeners, you have to explain what that is. But that's, I mean, this guy's a pretty bad guy, but to have lived through, to, to have survived that is also really horrible. The Bataan Death March was the forced march of thousands of American and Filipino prisoners of war in the Philippines by the, the Japanese army. Yeah, brutal conditions, a lot of starvation and torture. The, the goal was to walk these men to their deaths. So Basil Collins survives that in World War II, and then 30 years later is here in Harlan County, Kentucky, a like notorious, like known strike breaker and gun thug. And is the one of the villains of this doc, but that's interesting context to know that he's he lived through like tremendous brutality himself. Uh, that man is the gun thug. He's the same one that came up here before, and uh, and he had the gun in the car whenever uh, Reb was talking to him. And he's a cruising around here now, going up and down, trying to find out who's here. Documentary filmmakers really get criticized for the way that they treat their subjects, right. like maybe misleading their subjects, recording things that they shouldn't record, taking advantage of people. But there were no allegations at the time or since then that Barbara Koppel took advantage of these people. And in fact, she had a really good relationship with them. Mm-hmm. I know that watching it now, we have some questions when we're watching some of these scenes. Is this okay that she filmed this? Yeah. So what were some of those scenes that like made you kind of say, hmm? Over the course of the documentary, there are a couple of memorial or funeral scenes that I didn't feel fully comfortable watching. Yeah. I mean, the point is not to feel comfortable, obviously. Yeah. Right? The point is to show the audience like the grief. And I know that none of that is being performed, but I think it's because the intimacy of those moments and the profound grief... You know, it does make you feel like maybe I shouldn't be privy to this. Um, the first one happens earlier in the film, and there's a memorial after a mine explosion, and about like 70 men die, mm-hmm. and uh, the families go and see some flowers that have been put up for them. And one of the mothers or wives, she starts wailing, and they carry her away. But Barbara Koppel and her crew aren't there in the memorial when she's crying. They're on a hill pretty far away. And so the shot is from pretty far away, which makes it feel even more like we shouldn't be be seeing yeah. this. Um, because not even that crew is a part of this intimate moment. And then later on, there's a whole section of the film that is is pretty disturbing and it's about the death of a young mine worker named Lawrence Jones 
And this seemed to be kind of the critical straw that broke the camel's back and got the contract signed was the death of this this young man. He was um, shot by a scab. Yes, right? he was. Yeah. And we that story unfolds where you see her shooting through the door into the, his hospital room and talking to these guys who are speculating about who did it in the parking lot. And then she even goes to the scene where he was shot and a man points out, like, here's his brain. Like, here is, like, like gray matter, like, on the ground. And that... yeah. It's just such a disturbing thing to include in this film and feels like you could argue is a step too far to to show this man's like brain on the ground. But it is also absolutely unforgettable. Mm -hmm. But then you have Lawrence Jones' funeral and his mother really breaks down at the open casket. And that scene feels like it goes on forever. It goes on so long and it's such a profound like demonstration of grief but yeah. she's right there. She's like three feet away. And she's clearly been invited to this funeral. And everyone knows that she's she's recording this funeral, which makes it feel very different from the memorial earlier. Um, but it's that same discomfort right. at such an intimate display, an intimate moment um, that you feel like, oh, this should be for the family, for the community that knows Lawrence Jones, maybe not for everyone in the audience who's watching this film. But I don't know what you guys think. It's tough because for especially a modern viewer, it definitely crosses lines of informed consent, what you put on screen, what you consider too personal to include in a final cut of a film like this. And yet it's what makes the film what it is. It's what makes the film profound. The whole point, what makes the film work is that it is a intimate look at this strike instead of much more top down right looking at the corruption and the leadership of the you know united mine workers and instead she made something very profoundly intimate you know she's filming the family at what at what seems to be like in the hospital waiting room when he's still alive the mother is talking about how she's proud that her son's yeah. a union man she doesn't want him to be a yellow back scab you know? Right, right. His death is so tied into the movement, like even his family can't separate it. But they know that the fil the film, the cameras are there, you yeah. know, like this film crew, like their, their equipment is huge. It doesn't feel like a manipulation. Like we watched the portrait of Jason. I was just about to say that. <laughs> that movie is really, it's yes. very interesting film, but it feels... I don't know that film. You, you watched, watched it with, with us. us. Yeah. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a conversation with one man, but it feels like it's exploiting him because you're you're just watching him drink and drink and drink and get to the point. Oh yes. Oh. But it feels yeah. disgusting. It it, feels and gross. then has like an emotional breakdown and it's like it seems like you kind of pushed him to it. And that is like a whole other ethical conversation we can have that I don't think is happening here in Harlan County. Yeah, I think the Barbara Koppel situation is different. I agree. Yeah, because with Portrait of Jason and with many documentaries that are problematic, the issues that the director and the crew are inserting themselves and manipulating the situation. And in this instance, I don't believe that Koppel is doing that, but she's still playing with mm -hmm. some voyeuristic tendencies but again, it's exactly that 
what's the word? Not view. Um, it's exactly that gaze. <laughs> <laughs> to use Annie's favorite word. Um, that, in, that gaze into the intimate that you can't see just in a news clip, yep. right, of minors on strike that makes this film a masterpiece of documentary filmmaking. But I, I agree with Annie that there is some voyeuristic tendency in some of these scenes. I was actually thinking about this with the 20th anniversary of 9-11. As usual on the anniversary of 9-11, a lot of people mm-hmm. sharing the photo of like the falling man. That's a really good example of something that mm-hmm. can serve as a memorial to that experience and those people. And yet the the sharing of it is voyeuristic, yeah. right? It's sensationalized. There's something when you're looking at that, you think you get a a better understanding of what happened, but do you really? By looking at that image or by watching the grieving mother that long, right? And it goes on and on. Is there something wrong with me? I didn't think that that scene at the funeral went on that long. I felt like it was pretty (laughs) fast. (laughs) I mean, I think you needed to see her approach and be upset and then be carried away. Because to have just cut it off at her wailing and not be carried away... This is a tragedy. This is how people really behave. Yeah, that's true. And to think that, oh, people just show up at a funeral and then cry, you know, that doesn't tell the full story. I think she walks the line sometimes. I don't think she crosses it. I agree. But I think another aspect of that is the power dynamic between her and her subjects. Right. Which is another thing with Portrait of Jason, which is that in almost every documentary, the filmmaker is usually in a position of greater power or privilege than than the subject. Not always. But this is an example of one of those films, right? Where she's coming in. When I'm watching movies like this, I'm also thinking about that, right? Because the camera, even though she has this relationship, and we thinking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, right? That this documentary is also a product of a collaboration between her and her subjects. But because they're actually living this, and this is their community, it has very different stakes for them than it does for her. Yeah. It's you know, the the lens and the camera operates differently. Yes, but I think that she, by putting herself in the situation where she has a bounty on her head and she's also risking her safety and her livelihood mm-hmm. by being there, I think that it changes the power dynamic. I think that the camera, that everyone around her, all of these, peop- all of these people on strike, that they felt empowered by having her there. When you're recording the scabs, they behave differently. Yeah. One of the great things that happened on this production was that even when she was running out of film, she would hold up the camera and pretend like she was still shooting yes. to prevent further violence. Or not even to yeah. prevent the violence because the violence still happened even though the crew was there. Well, at, at night. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really want to talk about that scene because yeah. I feel like that is such a fascinating thing where... I think it's the best part of the documentary. As it's the climax. And people behave differently when a camera is on them. The one time that they are attacked is at night, yeah. right? So there's kind of an assumption that, well, you can't really be filming something because there's no light. Right. That makes that scene during the night attack when Basil Collins is driving by in the truck and they turn the light on his face. Mm. And he's clearly agitated that, oh, no, they have lights. Because why else would you plan this attack at night? Because you think that they won't be able to capture it. <sighs> Gives me chills every time. The picketers are attacked and the camera crew is also attacked. You can't really tell what's happening. You just really can't see anything. There's a lot of sound and screaming and gunshots and cars 
driving around. Mm-hmm. But she said that her cameraman was attacked and she was knocked over and they tried kicking her, but they ended up kicking her recording machine, a Nagar recorder. Mm-hmm. And so she wasn't actually hurt. <laughs> And she used her boom pole as a weapon to swing it, swing them off. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. She literally has to weaponize her boom pole, like, t- for her own safety. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you're trying to think of the power dynamic of the documentarian here, it's that sh- she lends power to the people on strike because sh- the camera is protecting them in a way. And... You know, she's putting herself at risk and she isn't safe by being there and trying to make this documentary. And I think that makes the connection between her and the subjects of the documentary so much stronger. Well, and she said that the union organizers told her after filming wrapped that there had been a price on her head. Oh my gosh. Another interesting story is about the film itself and what she had to do to protect the actual film, the actual product. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they rented a hotel room that was pretty far away. I think it was actually even in Tennessee. And they would drive and drop the canisters of used film into this hotel room. And then when they had a bunch of them, they would mail them to her father in New York, and he would keep them in a fridge. And then her father would send them boxes of new film so that she could keep going. Wow. And they used 16 millimeter film. It would only run about 10 or 11 minutes on each reel before it needed to be changed out. Oh my gosh. Wow. Which if you think about it compared to to now, where, mm-hmm. you know, you could run your, your digital camera all day and not think twice about it. I think one of the criticisms of this documentary is that it's a little one-sided, uh, is that it's entirely you know, pro-strike. It's entirely behind the workers, which I am inclined to also side with, but that you know, some criticism of this is that she didn't really talk to the owners and the, the coal operators. and She didn't really talk to scabs, people who scabs. She scabbed. didn't really talk to scabs, exactly. It's, it's pretty one-sided. I think that was, for me, a big missing part. Mm -hmm. Well, I think her comments about that are that she's a documentarian. She's not a journalist. A journalist, like in her view, a journalist needs to give a balanced view, weigh both sides. A documentarian tells the story that they want to tell. She's not obligated to get that other side because this is the story she wanted to tell. In doing so, she really shed light on a story that a lot of people didn't know about at the time and gave a voice to people that otherwise wouldn't have had access, wouldn't have been able to get on radio or get on TV and be interviewed. I mean, when when they're at the picket line, there's no news crew there. I think my fundamental problem and what I was trying to get at is that even though she talks about this stuff, she doesn't feature enough interviews for it to really feel like a balanced depiction of the whole story that she's telling. It's like she's really talking with the my, uh, the strikers and the doctor and everything, and then telling you the story of what's going on on top. And it just, for me personally, it felt a little bit unclear and like there could have been more balance in the interviews, especially talking with leaders of the union with scabs with different people who represented different parts of this story they can make their own documentary 
they can make their own documentary and explain why it's okay that coal company profits in 1975 went up 170% and minor wages went up 4% and the cost of living went up 7%. And why it's okay to spread this propaganda and these lies to make people feel like unions are communists, that price of goods is going to go up if we pay these people a living wage. There isn't a balanced story there, and I don't think we need it. I think that any story needs a little bit more balance. So what she's really doing is, you know, you're talking about documentary versus journalism. This is documentary. It's documentary. Journalism would have more of a balanced approach in trying to address, even if you disagree with their views, other perspectives and other people who are part of this story, right? And I'm not disagreeing. I agree with you, Jesse. It's not balanced inherently because there's a power dynamic here that is unfair. That's what this documentary is about. That's how that's why people go on strike to address unfair power imbalances. I'm not disagreeing, but I'm saying I just want to make it clear, especially <laughs> in the final edit of this, yeah. I'm not anti-union. I am in a union and I've been on strike. I am pro-union. I'm saying from a historical perspective, it's interesting because we were talking about documentary versus journalism, or you could talk about documentary versus history, right? Like Ken Burns always says. He's a documentarian, not a historian, mm-hmm. even though Ken Burns sometimes gets called a historian. What would a historian or a journalist do? They would consider more these other perspectives. Whether you think that they should be considered or are valuable or worth considering, right? Like a scab. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say a scab's perspective is like <laughs> totally worth. Ain't no healing from a scab. Ain't no healing from a scab. Right, but a historian or a journalist would at least have to, to grapple with that a bit more. And because she's a documentarian, she can tell this way more intimate story. What is lost a little bit for me is some of that context. And I understand that she's giving context on the corruption. I personally find it a little bit confusing, especially if you don't have background in this. I think they did a pretty good job because I didn't know anything about that. And I came out knowing... A hell of a lot more after watching this because there's a solid like 10 or 15 minutes in the center there that it's entirely about the corruption of the of the united mine workers of america when it came out i think there might have also been an expectation that people understood a little bit more Mm -hmm. the nature of unions the nature of labor organizing in the mid-70s than they do in the year 2021 that's probably true does that make sense too so there's some stuff that's left unsaid then that might have been understood more immediately by the audience i also love this movie i love this film why do you love this movie I do. Why, why do you love it <laughs> because of the intimate portrait because there's nothing else like it right other documentaries and stuff about this are more top down but she also she happened to be there just the right moment to capture something really unique a moment in history that would have been lost that's why i love this because i think it's it is itself a historical document Right? It is not a history. It is not a work of journalism. But as a historical document of its own today, I think it's just magnificent. So let's talk about how the movie wraps up. As we mentioned before, the turning point in the strike is when Lawrence Jones, a striking mine worker, is murdered on the picket line. Shortly after that, the company signs the union contract. But a little bit later, in a slightly complex series of events, the union has to sign a new contract and they have to make concessions. 
those concessions end up being that the miners lose the right to strike on a local level. You know, this is seen as like a really disappointing move. And, you know, they, they do get other things like more vacation time and it's like a certain pension benefits, but this big tool that they have to leverage the little power that they have is taken away from them. Exactly. And that's something that they're basically forced to agree to. Miller's the one who came in and, and made that concession. But at the beginning, he's like, we're going to organize the unorganized. We're going to, this is going to be an organization that's run by the rank and file for the rank and file. But in the end, once you get past the rank and file, there are all these other interests at play. And then the rank and file ultimately still sacrifices. Maybe that's why I'm being a little grouchy, because I think <laughs> the ultimate experience is something that this film touches on toward the end, which is kind of a disappointment mm. in the gains that you can get in the leadership of your union. And if there are any people who are in my union who are listening to this, I think we can all agree that going back and forth over a contract, when you are a union, when you're the less powerful group, you know, it's very rare that you get enough concessions from the people in power that you have meaningful change. And there's, you know, a part in the movie... I think where Koppel asks, you know, how do you feel about everything? Like, what do you think about going forward? And the guy says, well, something like, I'm looking forward to the future now. And it's really sad because, you know, it's not going to last. These concessions, you, you, they fight tooth and nail for, and they can be rolled back very easily. And a lot of that's because rank and file have different priorities than the leadership of the union who are doing any sort of negotiating, mm -hmm. right? Like the people on the picket line. And that's what I was kind of getting at earlier, which is, the union can come in, they can organize, but they're not invested in long-term outcomes like the community is, like these women are, because they're thinking about their sons, whereas this centralized union has different concerns. And I think that that's something that I found in my experience, which is that you there are many different parties, each with their own concerns, their own needs and desires. And ultimately, when you go up against the big bad, that makes it hard to actually have solidarity and like sustained long-term change in a labor setting. I mean, I ended this movie with a similar thought that I ended with office space. Yeah. Well, and in this movie, the ending makes really clear that this is just the beginning of the next cycle of striking right. corruption, concessions. There's not going to be any fundamental change. A new contract is just a new contract. It's just setting the goalposts right. to a different place. But it doesn't exactly right. address the judges being in the pocket of the company, the politicians, the sheriff, the union leadership, they're all ultimately going to bend to the will of the company because they have the power. That's right. Office space, they, the workers destroyed the physical building, but they didn't tear down the actual company, right? It's, it's just going to find another office building to put these workers in that, they're, that they don't care about. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I am, I'm absolutely pro-union. I think... We need stronger union and labor organizing in this country. And yet, ultimately, unions will not save us <laughs> from the problems inherent in our economy, which are these power imbalances. Organized labor tries to correct some of that imbalance. But ultimately, especially today, you can't. <laughs> you just can't. Office space captures that really well. Never shoot that union out of me.
there's a really great discussion when we see the mine workers go up to New York City and protest on Wall Street. They're trying to get at Duke Power stock and telling people, like investors and brokers who are walking into their office buildings, like, hey, don't don't invest in this company. It's risky. We're we're striking against them. They're terrible. They're trying to really get at the the root of where the power actually rests, right? Like in this Yeah. And there's a, a mine worker talking to a New York City police officer. They're talking about wages and benefits and the danger of the job. Like there's so much in common that these two workers have. One is like totally accustomed to the benefits of a union. And then you've got the this mine worker who doesn't have the benefit of a union. Yeah. You know, the mine worker is trying to connect with this this New York City cop and he's like man, you guys have this tunnel up here. You know, I have a tunnel too, but it's like, <laughs> yay, hi. <laughs> and the cop is like, yeah, but I would never go in your tunnel. Like, like, I would never feel safe going into yours. In America, why don't we give them the same protections, the same amount of respect? Mm-hmm. We just, we don't. We don't. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that that electricity burning over, I think somebody dying every day for it. And one man dies every day. If we're looking at safety, it's like, well, it's not like mines elsewhere at this point in the 1970s hadn't already made strides towards better safety and better conditions because they even have guys, researchers from the Bureau of Mines, they have a, a clip of them saying research and and advancements happening in Germany and France and in their minds, it's so far ahead of us and we haven't done all we should and we have failed to like provide safety for American mine workers. And then when the doctor was talking about mine safety in Australia and how they virtually eliminated black lung, which I had to research later, because it's like, what? Like, I, how is that even possible, right? And basically they had air filtration in the mines for the workers, and then they would have regular screenings, health screenings for the workers so that they could detect early signs of black lung. And they virtually eliminated that respiratory disease in Australia for decades, and it just started resurging in the past maybe five or six years. And there's one really great scene when they're at the Black Lung Clinic in West Virginia, and it's three white men and a black man sitting. They don't have their shirts on, right? Like they're getting ready to be examined or to get treatments, and they're reminiscing about what it was like to be minors and how they would all go down into the coal mine and all come back up and they'd all be the same color. They'd all be covered in dirt. And the, and it's it's the black man who makes this observation. And, and he says it to the white men and they they laugh. And they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, we're all brothers. We're all getting plenty of dust, right? And they all end up sitting in the same place at the end of it. And right after that, you know, when they're talking to the doctor and they're at this clinic, they're talking about how, you know, disability benefits are set up to with this idea of sufficient impairment you know so people are being forced to work until they become disabled that there is no care for them before that point this is the corporate welfare that we have in america of like we we let these companies run their workers to the ground and then the government will be there to take care of them once they're completely spent and worn out i think the depiction of race is interesting as well because the image of Appalachia is Appalachia. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to say that? How do you want to say that? 
Is your, I mean, you grew up close to Appalachia, so is that your <laughs> first inclination to say that? It was just now. <laughs> um, but that region, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky, these old mining communities, the popular image of these communities is white and racist, right? Right. And I think what this documentary shows rather than tells is that historically, race in Appalachia is more complicated than the narrative has become. Yeah. There are black people in Appalachia. There are black communities and there's a culture and history. There are other dynamics as well at play like class. And I think that this documentary kind of demonstrates that to you. It shows you that it's a little bit more complicated than we might understand it popularly. Right. And I really, Mm -hmm. I, I like that. She doesn't hammer you over the head with that she just captures those moments like for example when the is it the sheriff you know the what i'm talking about yeah call basil collins yeah he uses the n-word yeah so basil collins uses a racial slur against a black minor and then lois says word and said that he's better than you could ever be right and that's a really powerful moment too and i'm not saying that there's no racism but i think it is more complicated and this is a good example of solidarity, right? Class-based solidarity. Well, it's because Basil Collins comes asking, he he's, they're wielding their guns and shooting at them. And he says, yep. well, where is, where's like the black man? And he's searching for him and yep. they're going to go after yep. them. And she stands up and she yells like, like she screams right yep. back at Basil Collins and is like, he's a better man than you'll ever be, right? And she's protecting yep. him. And like, she knows like what this guy is planning to do. And then at the yep. meeting the next day, she tells that story. And she's like, these gun thugs, they're beating women and they're trying to find black men and kill them. And she's like, that is what is happening. Yep. And that is why it matters that everyone here stands up and brings 10 people and like protects all of us. I I love the music in this movie. It's one of my favorite parts of it. I love how the lyrics are so specific and they tell the story of the union struggle and the minor struggle. Like they are specific down to naming people, naming mines, mm-hmm. naming disasters. You know, that's because of these the way that these traditional folk songs are structured right. that they're based on like common melodies that everybody knows mm-hmm. and different stanzas can be modified to include new parts of the story. And this is like a really old way of communicating between these isolated right. mountain towns where you would sing a song and then that song would be passed on from town to town and people would learn the stories of what's going on in other areas. You're so right. Like it's it's a way of capturing an oral tradition and you know, singing was how humans captured stories for so long. It's cool to see a community that keeps up that tradition even so recently and that these songs are iconic. They're pretty iconic songs and and some of them are just traditionals that they then sing in this setting. This little light of mine, right? They sing that, and mm-hmm. yeah, and and so there are there are these like traditionals that are, and then there are also the hyper specific songs telling the history of 
the strikes and the unions and how critical the union is just to the culture um, and how the resistance yeah. is just embedded in every part of the culture, even the music. That feeling and that that hit, that history that the songs that they're singing in the 70s were written about the 30s and to see you know the same women who were writing those songs when they were young mm-hmm. and running around like Barbara Koppel is here creating this piece of art they were there back then doing the same thing and she gets to capture them decades later how, how cool like how full circle some of that feels and the music is just amazing and Barbara Koppel clearly loves music and incorporates music a lot into her later films the one of the women who does a lot of the music in this film her name is Hazel Dickens and there are a lot of other films that she then worked mm-hmm. on after this uh, about this region she became the go-to person for like Appalachian folk music in in films I love how the songs are incorporated into the documentary and they just like they support the story right like the the song about the mining mine disaster and when they talk about that then they play the song that talks about that and like when they talk about uh arnold miller becoming president and then they play the song about that like yeah it's a it's an excellent device for conveying information you know, instead of like text on the screen, like white text on a black screen, you know, or just like a talking head, like interview to have these songs evoked in the same way that, you know, it's captured and retold in that community, to be able to do that in the documentary, like how powerful that is, and how Mm -hmm. special it is for this, like doc. Um, yeah, if I were Barbara Koppel, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to use this music as much as I possibly can. Like, this is the story. Yeah. This is their voices telling the story and how they talk about it and how they frame these things that have happened. And we got to use it. We got to use it. They say in North Carolina, Duke Power runs the show. Carl Horn would like to break the strike, but the miners tell him no. Before Highland County, USA, Barbara Koppel had, she, she was part of the documentary Winter Soldier that came out in 1972, but she was part of a collective of documentarians called the <laughs> Winter Film Collective, and so that they kind of stayed just kind of anonymized in this collective, essentially, and it's about, it's the accounts of the Vietnam soldiers who gave testimony at the war crimes hearings. Right. And Winter Soldier, the documentary, was re-released in 2005, like given a theatrical release after John Kerry's campaign, because he's one of the main interviews Mm -hmm. in the film. Wow. Oh, interesting. So that's the only thing that she had done pre-Harlan County, USA. And then she goes, immerses herself in this story, makes this film, wins the Oscar. (laughs) So it's like a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Her distributor did not want her to submit the film because the distributor wanted to put the film in theaters and thought that if people knew it was a documentary that they wouldn't go see it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but she submitted it anyway and then she won. Amazing. Best documentary. Um, And then after that, she basically worked as an editor and sound recordist on several other documentaries. And then her next big movie was American Dream, which was, again, about unionizing. Yeah, the Hormel food strike in 1985 in Austin, Minnesota. 
She was like super nervous to follow up Harlan County because it had been so successful. But then she won the Oscar for American Dream too. (laughs) The difference about American Dream was that she was trying to respond to the criticism she got for Harlan County really only showing like the, the union side of the strike. And so in American Dream, she tried to also work with management, try and interview and see the, the other yeah. side of things, but that it's still very much an intimate portrait of the people whose lives are on the line. You know, the local film critics in Austin, Minnesota, they were like, this documentary, you know, it exposes the human cost of Reaganomics. And like, it's about like the 80s and, and you know, yeah. the, the manufacturing process. This This movie shows how... Reaganomics philosophy of like as long as I've got mine the hell with everyone else so that's that's interesting it's a little different from Harlan County even though it's similar topic like I think her approach was a little different Mm -hmm. and the context of the 80s was also a little different interesting like she's a really hard worker like she's constantly working even if she's not directing her own documentaries she does she did some tv episodes like for Oz the HBO show and Homicide she has also directed sprint commercials and the really really terrible feature film havoc no have you guys seen that with anne hathaway and freddie rodriguez and bijou phillips what (laughs) it's about affluent white children in la who are captivated by latino gang culture i think it's such a bad movie it's so bad damn barbara koppel (laughs) She also did My Generation, which was about people who attended the 69, 94, and 99 Woodstock concerts. <laughs> and then she did The Dixie Chicks, Shut Up and Sing, which was supposed to be just kind of like a fluff documentary about the Dixie Chicks and their friendship and mm-hmm. how great they were. But she ended up filming it in the middle of the whole Bush controversy when oh. the lead singer said, you know, that she wasn't proud that Bush was from Texas, and then she got canceled. Yeah. So that was yeah. pretty lucky timing for that. And then Miss Sharon Jones from 2015. Oh, I love this one. Followed the singer and her resurgence in popularity, her struggles with pancreatic cancer, her illness. So I love Sharon Jones and the Daft Kings, so I also love Barbara Koppel's doc, Miss Sharon Jones. But when this happened, she was fighting the cancer, but then... On election night, 2016, she had a stroke. She said that it was because like, she was in shock that Donald Trump had won. And then she died two weeks later. What? My God. This is a true story. What? This is a true story. Jeez. But anyway, I mean, you can see from the like the Woodstock doc, the Dixie Chicks doc, the Sharon Jones doc, Barbara Koppel got really into like music documentaries as time went on. Sure. She also did one called Wild Man Blues, which is about Woody Allen's trip through Europe with a jazz band where he's playing jazz clarinet. And I got to say, yes, look, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Um, Hearing her comments about Woody Allen made me really took the wind out of my sails and wanting to do this movie. Yeah. Oh, no. I don't know anything about this. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, me either. (laughs) No. Okay, I gotta know. You gotta tell me. Yeah. In October of 2020, so a year ago, she did an interview with Mark Marin, and in it he asked her about 
Woody Allen. And it was part of a broader conversation about what's it like to work with celebrities? And does that ever present a challenge in being able to tell the story that you want to tell? Mm -hmm. She praised Woody Allen. And not in, he was so great, he was so funny, Mm -hmm. but he is great, he is funny, he's a great comedian, he's a great filmmaker. Oh boy. Oh man. The documentary Mm. she filmed was in the mid-90s. It was after marrying Soon Yi, after the child abuse cases wrapped up, and the custody case. So he's on a rehabilitation tour, and Mark asked her about this. He was like, you know, did you feel like he was like trying to normalize this relationship and this behavior? And she was like, no, I thought they were a great couple. Like she said that she didn't think there was any agenda with the documentary other than Woody Allen wanted to capture his love of jazz. Yeah, right. And it was just like, yikes, Barbara girl, how are you not seeing that you are, we're being manipulated by this person, right? Like, Okay, is this person trying to get you to make a film that shows him in the best light? Probably, right? Like, why not just scrutinize that? And she didn't. When when she said that, like, Mark was like, okay, okay. Oh, God, I don't like that at all. Right. I mean, it's like, I don't want it to take away from, like, this is her personal opinion. She's a documentarian, but it just felt like such a weird like yeah gap yeah. in judgment i don't i just like i had such respect for her for how she conducted herself with harlan county usa and like this film i love so much and i i really like how she went about it but this is really disappointing to hear so it makes you think okay even she is not immune to being charmed by a subject mm. and still not able to see it even decades later it was, and she just brought life into his world. And they had an incredibly wonderful time together. They're still together. They have two adopted children. And um, they seem so happy. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, are we ready for recommendations? Yep. I'm going to recommend a Barbara Koppel movie, even though she has a bad opinion. Desert One came out last year. And it's about the failed U.S. attempt to rescue the Iranian hostages in 1980. I thought it was really great because it had really interesting use of animation in place of any kind of reenactment. It didn't feel out of place. It felt really seamless. They interviewed former military, former hostages, Iranians who guarded the hostages, Iranian bystanders who witnessed the failed rescue attempt. It was pretty well done and really informative. So check it out. Okay. (laughs) If you're interested in the broader history of strikes and labor organizing in the United States, I recommend reading up on Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union. Specifically, I recommend, as an entry point, the PBS documentary, The Fight in the Fields, Cesar Chavez and the Farm Workers Struggle. Annie? Nice. So yeah, I'm struggling to pick uh, what I want to recommend today. (sighs) Um, So there's a movie that I haven't seen yet, but that I found while thinking about this movie. And it's, I just want to mention it before we leave today but it's called harlan county war and it's from 2000 and it stars 
Holly Hunter and Stellan Skarsgård, and it's about Bloody Harlan. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and it has Ted Levine, who you might remember as Stottlemyre from Monk. He's also in it. Um, nice. <laughs> so that's like that's like a self recommendation. I want to go and watch that now. Like <laughs> like a dramatized narrative, like the Harlan County story, and see what that's like. I'm also going to recommend the movie Songcatcher, which is also from 2000. This movie features music from Hazel Dickens, who did a lot of the music in Harlan County, USA. So if you're a big fan of the music in this film, uh, check out the movie Songcatcher. It's about a musicologist who goes to capture like Appalachian folk music and record it and learn and study it and make sure that it's preserved. And one of the cool things about that movie is seeing little baby Emmy Rossum like singing. <laughs> and... Huh. Uh, that was really fun. I didn't know she was going to be in it. I watched this movie this week because I wanted to know more about Hazel Dickens and more about the music. She's excellent. So that's that's a fun <laughs> one. I should probably just end, but I'm not going to. I'm going to say <laughs> that there's another uh, movie. It's called Bisbee 17. It plays with documentary and narrative and reenactments. And so Bisbee 17 tells the story of the Bisbee deportation which happened out in Arizona in 1917 when there were 1,300 mine workers on strike. The entire town was deputized to like arrest them and deport them. And, and there was a lot of violence, like anti-unionism, xenophobia. In 2017, the people of the town got together and they recreated what had happened uh, and did kind of a reenactment and captured it in this documentary. And it's really haunting and and scary trying to get at the same themes that were happening in post-world war one america arizona and similar like xenophobia that's happening still today so one for the music one for the like unions one <laughs> and <laughs> try and hit everything but <laughs> yep all right frankie you want to take us out do I? <laughs> okay, um, sure. Thank you for joining us today in our discussion of Harlan County, USA. Next time we'll be talking about Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. It's my pick. Charlie Chaplin's one of my favorites, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. It's going to be interesting, though, because we won't have audio clips. <laughs> but it'll be, I think it'll be an interesting discussion to wrap up our discussion of labor. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CinemaSilopod. And check out our show notes on our website, CinemaSilopod.com, for more information about our discussion here today. See you next time in the silo. <laughs> <laughs>
I I was thinking of October Sky. Oh right? yeah. Also the first time I ever saw Laura Dern. So like that's a really formative <laughs> movie. 